You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Man, good morning, 11.15. Man, y'all are on fire this morning, by the way. I don't know what's up with the 9 a.m. They had decaf or something this morning, but you guys are caffeinated, ready to go. Let's see if this carries over into the Word here this morning. If you've got a Bible, Romans chapter 3. So we're going to be, if you are joining us for the very first time, first of all, all of you are joining us for the very first time, most likely this week. So grateful you're here in person. What a gift this is. What a gift this is. But we are uh, continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We have been studying the book of Romans really past, I think, five, six weeks we've been in this book. And we are looking at the doctrine of salvation. I mean, that's what the whole book of Romans is about. It's this beautiful diamond that is exalting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every chapter is just a different facet of that diamond that's being turned for us. Unfortunately, these first few weeks, we have been in some of the darker shades of that diamond as we have been walking through kind of the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of of God's justice and wrath towards sin. And it's been a heavy few weeks. I mean, going through these past few weeks, it's been like a a sweet Cobra Kai kick to the face. I mean, these past few weeks, it's all it's been is just looking at, at the depravity of our flesh our, our, as human beings. And what we've, we've kind of pictured it as is like this courtroom where like for the past few weeks, Romans 1 through 3 is this courtroom setting and the, the person who's on trial is you and I. And we're being accused of the crime of, of rebellion against God and and a la- possessing a lack of righteousness that is needed to stand in his holy presence. And what Paul has done is he's called in witness after witness after witness to testify against us about our unrighteousness. And so he started with the first witness that was creation in chapter 1. That creation is called in, creation sits on the stand and says, Listen, I've been trying to tell you since the foundations of the earth, there is a God. I have displayed this God through his handiwork. When you look at mountains and when you overlook the ocean and you, you see the, the galaxy at night, you stare up in the skies, you're seeing a design that is pointing you to a designer. You're seeing a creation that is pointing you to a creator. And yet, in light of all that evidence about God, part of what is exposing the fact that you are a sinful human being is that you've chosen to reject that truth about God and exchange that truth with a lie. A lie that there is something lesser out there that deserves your worship more than God himself. You have worshiped the creation over the creator. You have rejected your God and exchanged it for idolatry. And so you are guilty. And then Paul calls in another witness to the, not the irreligious person, but for the religious person, he calls in the law of God itself. The Bible takes the stand and says, to you who claimed you have known God, that you've looked at this creation, you've believed in this God, you who have possessed the very law of God, who has told you who this God is and what is expected of you, even with all this information, you still haven't obeyed it. You've still fallen short of the righteousness that is in God, and you are guilty. And so over and over, these witnesses are testifying to our guilt and our need of a different kind of righteousness. And it gets to the point where we said last week, when you get to verse 20 of chapter 3, the case is closed, the gavel has been laid down, you and I are guilty, and it, it leaves us pleading for help. God, if there is no way that I can 
earn my own righteousness, a righteousness enough that equates yours to stand in your holy presence, and I am guilty, and the penalty for my crime is death. Oh, Lord, please help me. There's got to be something or someone outside of myself. And this moment of sobriety at the end of verse 20 where we are being escorted out of the courtroom, shackled in chains, heading off to death row, and into the courtroom walks a new defense attorney who stands up and goes, wait, I've got new evidence. I've got proof of a righteousness that is out there that you can have. That will, expose, that will expose your guilt, but then draw you to it and expunge you of that guilt to cleanse you in that righteousness, to free you and forgive you. And so that's what we're going to get right here in verse 21 and following. We are going to see 11 of what I would argue are the most significant verses in your entire Bible. One prof said that if your enemies are coming in after you and you only have one second to grab one page out of your Bible, this is the page you're ripping out. Romans 3, 21 to 31 is going to be the epicenter of this diamond that we are looking at called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all ready for some good news? It's been a hard week, man. I don't know about y'all. We need some good news and we got it right here. What do we need to know about this righteousness that we need in order to be saved? The first thing that you need to know right there in verse 21 is that it is going to come apart from the law. Whatever this righteousness is that's about to be manifested for us, it is going to come apart from the law. The first thing that you need to know is that the Ten Commandments are not going to be the means by which you obey them are going to save you. Your performance, your morality, any deeds that you're going to try to put forth are not going to be what's going to save you. Your righteousness can't come from that because we've fallen too short. Whatever it is, it's going to be apart from the law. The law of God is a ladder that no man can climb. But the good news is, there in verse 21, is that God descended that ladder to bring that righteousness to you. You see when he says, this righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, it's been manifested. That word manifested means to reveal the righteousness that God requires, the righteousness that you and I need in order to stand in his presence. That righteousness isn't ascended to, but it is actually descended to us. It has manifested itself to us. That's the only way that we're going to be saved is apart from the law. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, a Jew is going, wait a minute. So you're saying the righteousness that I need? is actually going to be apart from the law, that God's just going to give it to me? That's right. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Okay, so what is the purpose of the law then? Like, why did God even give the Ten Commandments? Didn't he say, obey these and you shall live? Wasn't that the ordinance? And that's what we've been trying to do. And and so, and so, why did did the Ten Commandments not even matter? I mean, what about Moses? What about all the prophets? Like, like, What was their purpose? Why did God even give the law? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked, because right there in verse 21, he says the purpose of the law and the purpose of the prophets is that they were to bear witness to the righteousness that you need that you cannot obtain through the law. In other words, this is what God did. When God put down the Ten Commandments on those stone tablets for Moses, it was never meant so that you would look at those Ten Commandments and go, oh, I can do those. In fact, I've already done them. Killed them. Nailed it. Like that's not what they were for. 
Because of our sinfulness, there is no way we could obey those Ten Commandments and, and, and lead to a righteousness there. There's no way. We'll always fall short. Those Ten Commandments were there, so we would look at them and go, there's no way I can do these. If this is where my righteousness is going to come from, the righteousness that equates God's righteousness, there's no way. I'm host. I'm going to have to have a righteousness that comes outside of this. That's the point of the law. And that's why I said the law is witnessing. It's, it's leading you to that truth. It's the reason why Matthew 17, when you have Jesus' transfiguration, you remember this? Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a hillside and he transfigures himself into the fullness of his glory, of what he will look like when he returns, when he's not in this human tent that he was in. The fullness of his glory that proves he is the Messiah. And do you remember who is standing to his right and to his left on that hill? Moses and Elijah. Of all the Bible figures in your Old Testament, why those two? Why not King David? Why not Solomon? Why Moses and Elijah? It's because Moses represents the law. Elijah represents all the prophets. All the Ten Commandments and the 613 that followed and all the prophecies about the Messiah who would come. Moses and Elijah, they're going, it was always about Jesus. And we are here to testify he's your source of righteousness, not us. That was the whole point of the transfiguration. That was the point of the law, is to witness to the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, if, if Jesus is indeed our righteousness, if it's, if it's being given by God apart from the law, how do we then receive that righteousness? You see this in verse 22. The righteousness of God, the one that we need, remember, it is going to come through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This righteousness is not going to come by us trusting in ourselves and doing our own works. It's going to come by trusting in someone else. Jesus Christ. This is what faith is. It's taking the trust you have in you and transferring it to someone else. Because they are worthy of that righteousness. Faith is recognizing your impotence your inability to preserve your own righteousness or earn it, and so you're trusting in someone else in this situation. Now, you need to know that what we're trusting in is not a who, not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. And this right here in verse 22 is only the second time you've seen the name Jesus in this courtroom setting. The first time you saw the name Jesus was in chapter 2, and you know what he was bringing in chapter 2? Wrath and judgment to all those who have rejected him. But here... In chapter 3, the next time we see the name Jesus, he appears with salvation in his hand, with grace and mercy for you to lead to your righteousness that is found in him. Now, at the end of verse 22, I want you to notice a beautiful thing about this salvation when it comes by faith and not through your works. And that is in verse 22, there is no distinction. If we're going to play the salvific game of the best among us are the ones who get saved by God, the most moral, the ones who've had the most religious tradition, um, the one who've done the most works and fulfilled the, most of the Ten Commandments. If we're going to play that game, we have reduced salvation down uh, to Darwinism. It is going to be survival of the fittest. And I don't know about you, I'm probably the first to get hosed in that list. Somebody else is always going to be better than me out there. And, and that's, that's not distinction, or that is showing distinction. That is playing varsity and junior varsity when you start heading down that path. But the reason that there is no distinction is because of the state that we are all in. And you see that in verse 23. 
all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Did it say some? Some and others, not some. No, all of us. Everyone, even the best one among us, humanly speaking, we have still fallen short of the glory of God. When, again, we argued this in week one. When you are trying to compare your righteousness to other people's righteousness, you will always find somebody worse than you. But when you take your righteousness and you compare it to God's righteousness, we all fall short. Now the playing field is leveled. There is no distinction with God. We are all guilty. And so therefore, if salvation is going to come by faith, equally, there's going to be no distinction. It's going to be leveled by whoever so comes in faith. Anyone who comes by faith can be saved. And so now, again, I want you to see this. We're going to dive into some deeper waters here, starting in verse 24. I want to show you how the forgiveness and the salvation of God works. If you've been around church at all in your life, you've heard the phrase, just believe upon Jesus and you'll be saved. And that's true. And we go, amen. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does that mean I need to have a belief in Jesus like I believed in Abraham Lincoln? Like I believe he existed. I think he's an actual figure, but I'm not trusting him for anything. And I certainly don't have a relationship with him. Like what does believing and being saved actually mean? You're going to get a breakdown here. Y'all, we're about to go old school Bible study right now. Ain't no preaching in this. We're just going to be doing some teaching right here, slicing through this. And I'm going to drop a few seminary words on you. I'm going to explain them, but I'm going to save you $30,000 of education right here. Okay? The first thing that happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, is you are justified. Justified is a legal term. We've got to go back to the courtroom here. It's a term that means declared innocent. But it's deeper than just forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you committed a crime. I know you did it. I'm just going to forgive you. But, but you, the, the reality is you still did it. But I'm just going to let you off the hook. Justified is deeper than that. It's not just canceling the debt. But it's actually, it's combined with another big word that we use called expiation. It's actually casting the sin away as if it never existed. That is deeper waters right there. As if you never committed the crime, that it's been removed. And temple sacrifices uh, on the Day of Atonement with, with the Jews, they would bring in two goats. One would be slaughtered as a substitute, taking the penalty for your sin. And the other you would lay your hands on as if you were conferring your sins upon that goat. And that goat would be released into the wilderness called the scapegoat. And it was to take your sin as far as the east is from the west. And that is exactly what God has done in justifying us. Not just canceling the sin like, like you're just forgiven, but the sin's still there. It's actually declaring you totally innocent, as if it was never there. Now, how you do this, because that doesn't seem very fair. Like, we've already seen in verse 23 that we've all fallen short. We're all guilty of the crime of rejection of God how do you just act like it's not there? Well, you don't, but there is a means by which God gives you this justification. He says in verse 24, by his grace as a gift. It is a gift. That word gift, in the Greek, it's a word called doron. It's used in another place in your New Testament. In John 15, 25, Jesus, quoting Psalm 69, says, you know what? They hated me without cause. They hated me, Doron, as a gift. I want you to see the juxtaposition there. 
you and I have about as much right to be saved as Jesus had to be executed. Jesus was hated and put to death as a gift. He did nothing to earn or deserve it. You and I have been given life as a gift. There is nothing we have done to earn or deserve it. It has been given freely by God through Jesus Christ. But you go, wait a minute, that, that can't be. Nothing's free. I've, had, I've seen enough infomercials to know there's always strings attached to whatever this thing is. And the truth is, yes, there is 100% absolutely strings attached to this free gift. Let me ask you a question. Is your salvation free? How many say yes? How many say no? You're both right. It is free and it is not free. It is free for you, but it cost someone else something. Every time you open presents at Christmas, it's free for you to open. You didn't buy the gift. You just get to open it. Somebody purchased it. Somebody paid for that thing. And in the same way, we see this at the end of verse 24. By what means did this gift come through? Was it just free, like God just acted like the sin doesn't exist? Or was it actually paid for on your behalf and in your place? Verse 24, he said, it came through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Y'all know what that word redemption means? It's a fascinating word. There's a lot, of, a lot of different words in the Greek that you can use for redemption. The most common word that Paul uses in all his letters is a Greek word called exagorazo. It means to buy up. I'll give you an example. You've done this. Have anybody ever been to Chuck E. Cheese's in your life? Come on, own it. Just own it. Just come free. You're safe, all right? You don't want to go there now. Too many germs. But <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese's, you're in there. You go around all day playing games. You rack up a bunch of tickets. Where do you take those tickets? You take them to the ex Agarazzo counter, the redemption counter, right? And what do they do? They buy your tickets back and they give you a gift. That's what they do. And that's, a, that's the most common word used in the Greek for redemption is ex Agarazzo. The fascinating thing is Paul doesn't use it here. He uses it in all these other places. He doesn't use it because that term is too vague. He uses the term lutrosis. Lutrosis means to pay a ransom. It's not that I just bought you back. It brings with the understanding you were enslaved. You were held hostage by your sin, held captive by the enemy. You had no hope. You were in prison. You were never going to be released. You were being sent to death row, and that is your status. And yet, this hostage, uh, this hostage uh, um, kidnapper who took you, he demanded a, a payment of ransom if you were to be out, and that ransom was paid by God. It was paid for you. And not only that, Paul doesn't just use lutrosis here. He puts a prefix on the beginning of it called apo. Apo means to cut loose. Apo, lutrosis, means that I'm going to pay your ransom and I'm going to set you free. And that's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. He paid our ransom, the ransom that sin demanded, which was death. And he paid that for us so that we could be liberated no longer held bondage, but free to a new king, free with a new heart, free with a, with a new identity and a new life that is in him. And you go, wait a minute, man. What, what, what was that payment? Like, what did God, what was the currency that God actually used to pay that ransom? And Paul says it one more time here. It wasn't a what, it was a who. Jesus Christ was the payment for our sin. 
We violated God through sin. We were immediately in debt. You and I were prisoners to sin and death, children of the devil. No payment in and of ourselves could pay that ransom. And God came in and paid it for us with the life of his own son. Jesus Christ, who was given for us. That was the currency that was used to purchase this gift. And church, don't miss this. I, I want to be as clear as I can right here so you're not walking out of this place with any sort of confusion. Biblically speaking, there is only one payment and one payment alone that is good to purchase your righteousness and your salvation. And Mohammed cannot purchase this for you. Buddha cannot purchase this for you. Your Catholic priest cannot mediate this for you. And your own works, your own religious tradition, your parents' upbringing, and certainly being born in the state of Texas, cannot purchase this gift for you. It comes through one currency and one currency alone, Jesus Christ. He is the only means of your salvation. And that's why Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter echoed this in Acts 4.12 when he said, There is no other name in heaven by which you can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, that, that is the payment. It is Jesus. And if Jesus is the payment, the, let me ask you a banker question here. What is, what is the ATM, so to speak, that transacted that payment? What was the banking process that allowed Jesus to be the gift for you that deposited righteousness into your account. You know what it is? Look in verse 25. Paul says, this Jesus whom God put forward. In the New American Standard Translation, it says, whom God displayed publicly. Can you think of the place where Jesus was displayed publicly as the means of our righteousness? It was the cross. The cross, that crucifix was the ATM that transacted the payment of Jesus as the gift for our salvation. Remember why the penalty was. The penalty for sin was death. Go all the way back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat any tree of the garden that you want. Just stay away from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the moment that you eat of that tree, you will what? You will surely die. Paul's going to say later in Romans 6, the wages of sin, that which we earn because of our sin, is death. That is the payment. That's the law. You can't change that. If you sin against God, the consequence is death. And not just physical death, eternal death. Alienation from God in hell forever. That is the payment, is death. And you and I, because that's the payment, we can't just be forgiven and let off the hook. We need somebody who will take that payment for us. And that was Jesus Christ. We needed a substitute. And not just any substitute. It's not like I can ask you to go die for me and God will let me off the hook because you're another sinner just like I'm a sinner. There's no human on earth who has the ability to exchange themselves for the payment of our sin because they too are guilty of sin. You need somebody who's totally blameless, totally holy, who's never sinned. Does that person exist? No. So you know what God did? He sent him, Jesus Christ, the sinless one for us, who came and he substituted himself in the place that we were meant to be. He took the death that we deserved. 
C.S. Lewis called it the great exchange, where he gives his life and we get ours, where he, he absorbs the wrath of God and we receive the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. This, this him depositing by faith this righteousness in our account, the righteousness that Jesus possessed that we don't, he gave it to us by faith on that cross. But it wasn't just that, he also on that cross absorbed the just wrath of God that we've been looking at in chapters one through three. Jesus took it upon himself. And we see that in the middle of verse 25 when it says that he did this as a propitiation in his blood. A propitiation. It's another big seminary word here. It's a five-cent word with a $10 million meaning. And this is fascinating. The word propitiation means to bring full satisfaction. It means to appease. You know, when I've had arguments with my wife, or as I like to call them, robust dialogues, with my wife, and they have not gone well, and it's very much evidence of my failure as a husband in certain areas that have disappointed her, and there is a kindled just wrath upon me for a short period of time, and I find myself wanting to appease that wrath, and it's through I'm sorry's posture of heart, and watching countless episodes of Downton Abbey. Usually that's how I appease this just wrath of my wife. The question is, what is it that needed to be appeased from God. What was, what was his anger kindled towards? It was towards our sin. His just wrath needed to be appeased. The justice of God needed to be appeased. We needed somebody who can make us holy and also satisfy the punishment that the law demanded. There had to be a payment, and that payment was a blood payment on the cross. And y'all, this is where your Old Testament comes in. Brace yourselves. This is fascinating. The word that's used in Greek for propitiation, to appease, if you were to take that word and translate it to how it's used in Hebrew in the Old Testament, you get the word or the phrase mercy seat. Have you ever heard of the term mercy seat in your Bible? You know where that comes from, where we last saw it? Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is speaking about the Day of Atonement. Do you all know it's the most holy day in all of the Hebrew calendar? In the entire year, there's one, one ceremony that is more holy than any of them, and it's the Day of Atonement. Do you know that today, September 27th, is Yom Kippur? It is the Day of Atonement. In the New Testament, outside of the book of Hebrews, there's one passage that most explicitly shows you how Jesus is the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. And it is this passage right here. The mercy seat had everything to do with the Ark of the Covenant. On the Day of Atonement, here's the deal. You, know, you imagine the, the temple in Israel. In the back of the temple, there is what's called the Holy of Holies, where the big veil is that no man could enter into. Because in that room was the, the Ark of the Covenant and the holiness of God represented in that room. And no man could come into it except one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel was allowed to go into the Holy Holies to represent the entire nation. And they would go in there, they would sacrifice a bull, and they would take that bull, and they would take the blood of that bull, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies. Now I want to show you something. This Ark of the Covenant right here. 
You know what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Three major artifacts were in there. One of them is a golden bowl that represented where the manna was given to Israel in the wilderness. Also, Aaron's rod, which had budded, was also in there. And then there were two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. Now, to the Ten Commandments, to God, they are representing the character of God, the perfect law of God. But to us, what do the Ten Commandments represent? They represent our failure. They represent what we could not do. And inside that ark are the Ten Commandments. Above the ark, where the angels there are, you have the Shekinah, the, the, the glory of God hovering above the ark. And that perfect holiness of God's presence is looking down upon man's sin in that ark on the Ten Commandments. And his wrath and justice are kindled against it. That's why if anybody stepped into that room, you're dead. Because you can't stand in the presence of God. But the priest goes in there with the blood of this sacrificed bull that was a substitute for the people. And the priest would dip his finger in that blood and he would sprinkle it. See the gold top that the angels are sitting on? That is called the mercy seat. In Greek, that is called the propitiation seat. And the priest would take the blood of that bull and sprinkle it seven times on the top of that mercy seat. And now, when the holiness of God looks down upon the sinfulness of man, he doesn't see the sinfulness of man anymore. Why? Because blood has covered it. It has atoned for it. And the wrath and the justice of God is appeased because a life has been given for a life. Blood was the payment. Do you see the power of this text? In this moment, our sin is being propitiated Now, is that ceremony, is Yom Kippur, is it the full and final deal? So he sprinkles the blood on there, and now everybody's forgiven for all eternity. Is that right? No, because the next morning you're going to wake up, you're going to smart off to your mom at breakfast table, and now we need another Yom Kippur. And it goes on and on. It's the reason why they're still celebrating today, even minus the sacrifices. Jews are still celebrating that. It goes on and on. How do we know that Jesus was the full and final payment for us so that we don't need any more sacrifices? Because on that cross, remember what Jesus said? It is finished. I ain't no bull. I ain't no lamb. I am the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And I've shed my blood so that once and for all, you can be forgiven. You can be, your sin can be atoned for, covered by my blood. And God's wrath can be propitiated. It can be appeased. Man, this again, this amazing gift that God has given us through Jesus Christ. How is it received again? Again, notice in verse 25, through faith. It's received by faith. This is, this is the way in which justification and propitiation and atonement and all the other words that equal to your salvation, this is how this happens. Not by you doing something, but by you trusting in the one who's done something for you, Jesus Christ. You take your trust and transfer it to him. Does that sound too good to be true? You better believe it is. It is absolutely too good for us. Look at the end of verse 25. Why did God do it this way? Why did God choose to save by his works and not by ours? It was to show us something. In verse 25, this was to demonstrate or this was to show his righteousness. The word show there, the word demonstrate means to point out. It's displaying. It's like a billboard that's showing you something. If you and I are going to get saved by our own works, 
then all we're going to do is demonstrate how righteous we are. But that's not the case. However, when you're saved by faith, by trusting in the one who's worked for you, you're displaying his righteousness, not your own. This is why God did it this way, so that we wouldn't boast. There's an old illustration. I'll give it to you. Let's say, talked about this before. It's Ellen's 12 days of Christmas or something right now, okay? And I'm telling you, underneath every one of your seats is keys to a brand new BMW. They're all lined out in the parking lot. Don't worry, the neighbors don't think that's weird. But you've got all these BMWs out there. They're all yours. Some of you are going to go, oh man, that's amazing. Thank you. And you're going to run out there, jump in the car, drive off, just singing praises. Some of you are going to go, man, you can't do that. Especially with church money, but you can't do that. That is that is too nice of you. You can't just give me a gift like you gotta let me, let me, I mean, let me give something. I don't have enough to pay for that car, but you know what? I got about 10 grand in the bank. Let me give you that just as a thank you. And you go, no. Because if you pay me 10 grand for the rest of your life, you're gonna be able to say you bought part of that car. And this is a gift. Oh no, no, but you gotta let me do something, or at least give me what I have in my wallet right here. I I got five bucks in here. Let me just give you five bucks. I mean, that's worth it, right? And you go, no, no, you can't give me five bucks. The rest of your life, you'll be able to say you own five bucks worth of that gift. It's not a gift anymore. How about a penny? No, not even a penny. It's free because when you give it as free for the rest of your life, you will never boast in your own self. You know what you'll boast in? Jesus Christ. That's what you'll boast in. That's why if we were to play the old EE game, evangelism exposure, and I were to say, if you were to die today, and if God were to say to you, if you were to die today, why would I let you into my presence? And you start listing things, you're displaying your righteousness. Your only response would ask, why are you saved? Is to go, I shouldn't be. But by the grace of God, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has redeemed me. And my boast is in him, and I will boast in him all the day long. That is the beauty of the cross. Now, at the end of verse 25, we see one more reason behind God's motivation here. I want you to see this. He says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Because of his forbearance, he passed over sins previously committed. That word forbearance there means to delay, to hold back. In chapter 2, verse 4, we were told that one of the reasons that God delayed in judging people at the first moment they sinned is because of his kindness. He wanted to give you time to repent. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3. The slowness of God to judge is because it's actually the graciousness of God to give you time to own up to your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Well, right here, we're told that God's kindness is what allowed him to not to hold off his judgment all the way up until the cross. Which now brings in an interesting question here. And it's a question I always get from young believers who are real curious about how do Old Testament saints get saved? Have you ever asked that? Long before Jesus ever came, how did Moses and David and Abraham, how did they all get saved when Jesus wasn't around then? Don't, don't they have to believe in the cross, his work on the cross to be saved? And the answer is yes, but how do, they, how do they get saved? That answer is simply this. They were saved on credit. You ever used a credit card to buy something? Some of those a lot too much, but you use a credit card and they, they pay it, but it's got to be paid later. But we're going to go ahead and advance something to you right now. And that's exactly how this plays out. The balance would get paid at the cross. It's why Jesus said concerning Abraham in John chapter 8, verse 56, when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He was waiting for it. 
That's why Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed in the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He put his hope and trusting. Now, did he have all the details in full 2020? No, but he had the details that God gave him about a Messiah who would come and redeem. And he said, I'm in. And God said, then I'm crediting to your account righteousness. And you know, it still has to be paid. You're still guilty. It'll be paid when he comes. And on that moment on the cross, Jesus' blood atoned for all those who are trusting in him. You and I look back for our salvation. They were looking ahead. And you see that right there in that text. Paul then summarizes this whole thing in verse 26 concerning this demonstration of God's righteousness. He says, for this demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that God would be deemed both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You need to understand this. There is a tension in your salvation when it comes to how God pulls this off. How does God forgive you and still remain just while at the same time justifying you? This tension is always there. You see it right now, even in the brokenness of the world around us. Take Breonna Taylor this past week. You'll always have two sides. You'll always have, you have the police pleading for mercy in this moment. Listen, we were just doing what we said we were going to do. It was a horrible accident, but we were following orders, yada, yada. And then you've got Breonna Taylor's side and so many others in our country right now going, hey, we're pleading for justice because an innocent life was taken and no one's been held accountable. And you have these tensions and you always have them. If you went to an execution chamber today in Huntsville for somebody on death row, you're always going to have two families that are represented in that room. You're going to have one family that's crying out for mercy and another family that's crying out for justice. If you are God, how do you handle this tension of invoking true justice and yet granting pardon without it affecting one or the other? Remember, I've shared this story a number of times. It's just my all-time favorite of explaining how this tension gets resolved. And it was through the real-life court case in the 1970s in Southern California. Remember when the the young daughter gets pulled over for a speeding violation, decides she's going to go fight it in court. And it makes big news because when she's showing up at court, they realize her dad's the judge. Pre-nepotism laws back in the day. And so she shows up. She's in this courtroom, she's pleading her case, and everybody's wanting to know, God, how's this judge going to do this? Because in one sense, he is her dad. He loves her. He, He doesn't want her to go to jail. He wants her free. But at the same time, he's also a judge, and he's been appointed by the state of California to uphold the law that says you've got to prosecute those who violate the law. How do you do, how's he going to do both? And so sure enough, she presents her evidence She's guilty. There's no fight in this. And he has no choice. And in that moment, the judge slams the gavel and says, $200 or a night in jail. And she begins to weep because she doesn't have 200 bucks and she doesn't want to go to jail. And in that moment, you see this gasp in this courtroom going, God, what a cruel dad. He's a just judge, but what a cruel dad. But then he stands up from the bench and he takes off his robes. And he walks down to the floor where she is and he pulls out his checkbook and he pays the fine for and she's free. In that moment, the justice and the justifier are both met. And that is exactly what God has done through Jesus Christ. He could demonstrate his love for you by forgiving you, but he can also demonstrate his justice as a judge by paying that penalty through his own son, Jesus Christ, 
for you, for me. Man, y'all, this is the beauty of the gospel. This, is, this section right here, those six verses, they make up what is known as justification by faith, one of the most precious doctrines to us as Christians. And then what Paul does, we're out of time here, but let me just summarize this. In verse 27 through 31, Paul will review all of this by asking three rhetorical questions, three interrogations that are put here that show us what justification by faith proves. First question, if you're saved by grace and not by works, verse 27, then where is the boasting? Well, there is none. It's excluded. When you're saved by faith and not works, you can't boast in your works. So boasting's excluded. You go, but, but what kind of law are we going to boast in? A law of works? No, a law of faith. Our boast is not in our works. It's in faith. And Paul even synthesizes that in verse 28 when he hammers this question. And notice the pronoun change. He moves to we. Whenever you see this, a statement of fact in the Bible, and it's preceded by we hold to this, it is an apostolic creed that is being laid down for you. The truth is, early on in the church history, shortly after Christ's resurrection and ascension, the the 12 apostles all gathered together and they ruled on this in Jerusalem. Do Gentiles have to go through ceremonial law in order to become a Jew so that they could be saved? And the ruling is no, all they need to do is put their faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 15 is when they ruled on that in the Jerusalem council. And Paul summarizes it here when he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The older translations that used to read there say faith alone. Sola fide. There is no boasting but boasting in Jesus Christ. Second question, verse 29 and 30. What about God? Who is God in all of this? Is God the God of the Jews only? Meaning those who, the only ones who had the law? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of course he's God of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jew, and the uncircumcised by faith, that's the Gentile. We don't have multiple gods with multiple plans of salvation. This is exalting, justification by faith is exalting the oneness of God. It's not like there's a way through Muhammad that gets you saved. There's another way through Mormonism over here that gets you saved. There is one God, one way, faith in Jesus Christ. And so therefore the oneness of God is exalted. And then lastly, the final question in verse uh, 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Now because it's justification by faith, do we not need the Ten Commandments anymore? Are they no good anymore? Paul says, heck no. On the contrary. The law is established. The Ten Commandments were never a bad thing. They reflected the character and the righteousness of God. What was bad was us, our inability to keep it. But now because we've been saved through Jesus, who has fulfilled the law, it only establishes the law all the more. Not as a means of salvation, but a means of what Christ has fulfilled for us. And so it's beautifully withheld. And so you see verse 27, boasting is excluded. Verse 29 and 30, God is exalted. Verse 31, the law is established. Folks, this passage right here is the epicenter of your Bible. This is the diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has used to save us. My question for you, what are you trusting in? What have you put your faith in? If you are putting your faith in anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for you. That is a different gospel that is no gospel at all. It's no good news. 
If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, might I implore you through the richness of this text, turn away from trusting in your own righteousness and surrender your faith to Jesus Christ as God's gift for you. God so loved not just the world, God loved you that he sent his only son for you. That if you would put your faith in him, you would believe upon him in this manner, trusting in him for your righteousness, you will never perish but have eternal life forever. This is the good news of the gospel, y'all. And this is why we're here as a church to celebrate this. Amen? This is what we're here to celebrate. This is why we gather. And I can't think of a better way to conclude this passage. There's no better setup right here than communion. And so the band, I want to invite them back up here on the stage. When you came in, you should have got, you know what, I didn't grab it. Can somebody grab me a, throw me a communion packet? Blake God can everybody, runs communion for us, has for years. Thanks, brother. I I was going to double that, right. Love it. A little different form these days, COVID, a little different form, but the meaning is the same. Why do we take this, y'all? We take this in, in fulfillment of the ordinance that Jesus gave us to constantly remember and rehearse the gospel. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd ask you to hold off on this. Instead, I would implore you, consider the person and work of Jesus. Consider putting your trust in him. And can I just encourage you, don't wait until tomorrow or the next day. This is the most important issue that you're ever gonna deal with. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Jesus is offering this free gift to you today. Put your faith in him today and be saved. To all those who've done this, we get the chance through taking these elements here of reminding ourselves of what our God has done for us. Not what we've done for him, but what he's done for us. The Apostle Paul reminded us, and what you'll do is you'll flip back this very top cellophane layer right there. Grab you is is not gluten-free, just letting you know that right now. Paul said this to the Corinthians when he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of him. What we are doing, church, when we take this is we are remembering something. We are remembering that our sin demanded payment And that we, because of our sinfulness, needed a substitute. And God was faithful to provide a lamb for us whose body was broken and pierced, crushed for our iniquities for us. And so church, we take this bread in remembrance of his body for us. Likewise, Paul said in the same way, after he took the the cup after supper, And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Again, in remembrance of me. He said, the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was you had to put your trust in the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. Only until the next day when you had to do it all over again. The old covenant was you obey and you're blessed. You disobey and you're cursed. And we were constantly cursed. But the new covenant says, take your trust and don't put it in the blood of a bull. Put it in the blood of the Lamb of God who has come once and for all to take away your sin.
And he has done this for us. And so church, we remember the blood of Christ that has cleansed us to him. Paul said, as long or as often as we eat that bread and we drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we pray, Father, thank you for this reminder. Oh, how we need to be reminded of our sin and our guilt, but how much more we need to be reminded that that sin has been paid for, that guilt has been removed. There is not one of us in this room today who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, who has to keep running on a treadmill of performance because God, you have performed for us through your son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we can do that will make you, God, love us anymore. And there is nothing that we can do that will make you love us any less because you don't love us based upon us. You love us based upon your son who is perfect for us. And so, God, we herald that news and we pray that you would come quickly. But until then, would you save, God? Would you save for your glory and our good in Jesus' name? Amen.